I would say that the more I get involved in ATS, the more rewarding I have found it. And sort of having professional connections around the country has just been, you know, incredibly, you know, beneficial. Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about relevant critical care topics. And for today, we go to Ann Arbor to discuss recovery from sepsis. My name is Hallie Prescott. I am a intensivist and also outpatient pulmonary doc at the University of Michigan um, and the Ann Arbor VA Hospital. Um, and my research focuses on um, understanding morbidity and improving recovery after sepsis hospitalization. Thank you, Hallie. Um, so we know that globally about 20 million people develop sepsis each year. So why is short and long-term recovery from sepsis such an important challenge that clinicians must address? Yeah. Um, so as you, yes, exactly. As you mentioned, there's about 20 million people worldwide who are um, treated in the hospital um, for sepsis each year. And you know, while mortality remains high, uh, the majority of patients, about 14 million people worldwide, survive hospitalization for sepsis each year. Um, and we've discovered. Um, over the past, I would say, 10 or 15 years that that many of these patients don't go back to really how they were prior to the sepsis hospitalization, but instead many people suffer new physical disability, new cognitive impairment, um, and are also very vulnerable to further health deterioration um, and death in the, the weeks and months uh, um, following sepsis hospitalization. Um, so I think that, you know, in in addition to sort of continue to try to sort of like further bring down the acute mortality from sepsis, that we also need to be focusing our attention for the majority of people who now survive sepsis hospitalization, but often, you know, survive in a sort of weakened or sort of impaired um, way to see if we can improve the long-term quality of life and long-term survival of people who, um, who acutely survive a sepsis hospitalization. Yeah, I mean, it's almost a contradiction. We think we've done like a really great job by keeping this patient alive, but we end up they end up having suffering a lot of morbidity. Maybe you can share with us some of the uh, clinical sequelae of sepsis and how possibly we could prevent them either in the ICU or the hospital. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think some of these sort of issues that we see, I mean, um, are a result of the successes that we have seen in terms of bringing down, you know, in-hospital sepsis mortality over the past few decades. Um, but I think that, you know, you know, new problems, you know, have been um, sort of uncovered in the in the result, um, and that's why sort of now is the time to focus in, in addition on survivorship. Um, so you asked about, you know, what are the sort of common sequelae of sepsis that we see, and I think that um, the three sort of main things I think about are, one, um, new sort of functional limitations, two, new cognitive impairment, and three, um, I think broadly people are at sort of high risk for further uh, sort of health setbacks in the weeks and months after sepsis, and they're sort of um, within each of those sort of three broad categories, there's sort of a lot more things to say. So for functional limitations, I think that this talks about, you know, inability to sort of do the things that they used to do, inability to walk, inability to sort of, you know, balance a checkbook, inability to get dressed, inability to bathe or toilet independently. And these can happen for, for like a variety of mechanisms. So um, functional limitations can occur due to sort of new weakness. So muscle weakness, muscle atrophy can also occur due to decreases in stamina or exercise tolerance that happen because of, 
you know, cardiopulmonary limitations following critical illness and sepsis. Um, and some of them may also be related to cognitive impairment that, that limits people's abilities to do these activities. So sort of a whole variety of different mechanisms by which people at the end of their critical illness are not able to do the things that they used to be able to do. Um, then in terms of the health setbacks, um, you know, I think there's several things that people sort of are particularly at risk for. The most important one probably is recurrent infection. So, you know, we see this in, in sort of human clinical data, just looking at the epidemiology of what happens to patients after sepsis hospitalization. There's a very high rate of recidivism, of recurrent sepsis hospitalizations or recurrent infection. And some of that relates to just, you know, that the patients who have sepsis had risk factors in the first place, and those risk factors generally have not gone away. So the patients, you know, may still be older. They may still have, you know, cancer or some other condition that's suppressing their immune system. But we also know from sort of animal data that um, that patients' immune systems often don't return to normal after sepsis hospitalization. So the risk for recurrent infection is sort of even higher just as a result of having survived sepsis hospitalization itself. Um, I think there's also a suggestion um, that there is increased risk for other types of setbacks, so new cardiovascular events, um, acute renal failure, and also for aspiration pneumonia and aspiration pneumonitis, um, which happens because, you know, not only are people sort of arms and legs and, you know, sort of skeletal muscles weak, but so are swallowing muscles. And so people have increased risk for swallowing dysfunction, dysphagia. Um, a lot of them, you know, patients have new cognitive impairment that also contributes to swallowing dysfunction. And then they also have, you know, often an impaired immune system. So those three things really come together to make um, aspiration a very um, uh, sort of common and um, sort of important problem that patients face after sepsis hospitalization. So you mentioned a lot of different parts of the body that get affected. Um, and uh, we as clinicians or people working in the ICU um, have limited time and resources to see uh, these patients. Um, how would you suggest we either screen or prevent and do we need to have a more holistic approach to managing these patients? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, right, I mean, there, there, there are, it's true. I mean, a lot of things that can sort of... Um, go wrong after sepsis hospitalization, and so it's hard as a, you know, ICU doc to address all of these things, and in addition, you know, oftentimes our attention is drawn to the very sort of, like, sickest of the sick patients, um, and as people start to get better, you know, we, our attention starts to be drawn to, like, other patients who have just newly been admitted to the ICU, um, but I do think that, you know, these are sort of important challenges to recognize, both in the ICU when the patient goes to the ward and sort of shortly after their discharge from the hospital. And that was really one of the sort of main motivations for this, you know, recent review in JAMA is trying to raise the awareness of the particular problems that people are at risk for, you know, as they're recovering and sort of immediately after hospitalization for sepsis. So in terms of like sort of like the most high yield things to focus on in the ICU, I think this risk for aspiration is really important. Um, and so really, I mean, at this point, I don't know that we have sort of exactly guidance on sort of who should undergo formal swallow study, you know, who should, you know, be having a modified diet or who should really not be eating at all and should have a DOP-off. And, you know, increasingly I've gone to honestly like using an eyeball test. Um, so if I look at a patient and they just look incredibly weak and frail, they still have, you know, sort of ongoing delirium, waxing and waning mental status, I will really counsel the patient and the family that, you know, I recommend a DOP-off for the next, you know, week or so until they've sort of recovered further. Because I just really worry about these patients that if they aspirate in the ICU or on the ward, that they're going to end up, you know, back in the ICU, they're going to be reintubated, and they're just going to be that much more sicker. Um, whereas if we 
can do a short-term, you know, intervention, you know, not a DAP-off for life, not a feeding tube for life, but, you know, give them a week where we can really try to just make sure that they're on a path to recovery. I think that really helps people. And the reason I use this eyeball test as opposed to a formal swallow evaluation in patients is because, um, at least in our hospital, a lot of times the, you know, speech-language pathologist will come and they'll say, oh, you know, the patient doesn't really, you know, they're kind of confused or they're kind of sleepy. I don't, you know, I can't really formally assess their swallow, so I need to come back later and do it. And so they come, and when they actually do the test, they catch them when the patient looks great, right? Like they're in this period of, um, you know, where their mental status is good, they're not sleepy, and so they pass the swallow test. But we know that, you know, two hours later when the tray arrives, they may not look that good. And so I would see sort of frequently um, that patients would pass a swallow, but nonetheless, they would still be aspirating and they would still have setbacks. And so that's why I've gone to really using this eyeball test. And if I'm concerned that this patient is aspirating, um, I will, you know, counsel that we should do a DAP-off again for a short-term period till the patient has had time to sort of regain back some of their strength and clear their delirium. So I think that is a, you know, one sort of potential high-yield thing that we can focus on in the ICU. I think another high-yield thing we can focus on is the sort of de-resuscitation aspect of sepsis. So a lot of patients come in, they get a lot of volume, um, and they may have a positive fluid balance at the time that they leave the ICU. Um, And that you know, has been associated, at least in observational studies, with increasing weakness. Um, And then we see a lot of the reasons for hospital readmission after sepsis really relate to issues, I think, with sort of volume and sort of fluid management. So the second most common reason people come back to the hospital besides recurrent sepsis is heart failure exacerbation. And then one of the other very most common things that they come back with is um, acute acute renal failure and sort of volume overload. Um, and so I, so increasingly, I, I would say that I have also focused on, you know, what is the fluid balance? They may look good, but if they're, you know, eight liters up, like that fluid will catch up with them probably sometime. And so we should really um, start to try to diurese them. And really, this is something to check out to the floor team who may not be as sort of used to focusing so much on what is the overall fluid balance of the patient to say, okay, you know, we're happy they're only on a couple liters of oxygen, but just, you know, be aware they're still up, you know, six liters or eight liters and sort of you know, as you work towards getting the patient, you know, toward hospital discharge, you know, think about trying to get this patient closer to, you know, an even fluid balance and, or, you know, sort of back to what we think their dry weight is, recognizing that dry weight too can sort of change over the course of critical illness. Um, so, so those are sort of two major things I focus on really in the hospital. Um, you know, other things I focus on are really getting the patient up and moving to try to, you know, <clears throat> improve on functional uh, capacity. And that's something that, you know, we start very, very early on in the ICU trying to get people up and moving even when they're still, you know, critically ill, still potentially on mechanical ventilation. Um, But it's also something that needs to be focused on, you know, as patients get better on the ward. And then even when I see people back in my sort of pulmonary outpatient clinic, a lot of times I see these patients after the ICU and they'll say, oh, you know, I went home and, you know, I just can't do what I used to do. I try to walk, but I get short of breath or I have pain or I'm fatigued, and and that is really scary to a lot of patients. And so I'm amazed with how many patients tell me that, well, because they have those symptoms, they just decided they're not going to try to do these things. They're not going to try to move. They're not going to try to do the walking that they used to do. They're just going to, quote, wait to get better. Um, And so it takes a lot of counseling to tell people that, oh, no, 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 you know, like waiting is not necessarily a good strategy for recovery um, and that you really do need to push yourself, that it's going to be hard. You're going to get short of breath. You're going to be fatigued. It's going to be painful. Um, 
Um, and so maybe, you know, you need to do this in short periods and then do it several times a day. But, you know, everybody, I think, needs to work to get back to where they were, work for this recovery. Um, and so uh, some patients, you know, just telling them that, you know, being aware of this, they say, oh, okay, good. You know, I was afraid that it was bad to move, but, you know, now I know that it's actually like a really important part of my recovery. Um, I'm going to do that, right? And so those patients, I just sort of, you know, give them a pep talk. I, you know, I counsel them on what's safe to do, and they go out and they do it. Other patients, you know, who have more severe, more profound limitations, you know, that strategy doesn't work. And those patients I, you know, will refer to physical therapy, you know, if it's predominantly an issue of sort of, you know, physical weakness, um, or if it's more of, I think it's more of an issue of sort of stamina or deconditioning, um, I will refer them to cardiac or pulmonary rehabilitation, particularly if they have sort of longstanding or sort of chronic, um, uh, you know, pulmonary pulmonary um, diagnoses or cardiac diagnoses. So, but basically for all patients, I need that, they think that needs to be something that's addressed. And then we need to figure out for each individual patient sort of what's the most appropriate way to get them, you know, moving a little bit more each day um, in the weeks to months after sepsis. Yeah, I thought that. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your very useful approach. And I think the, stressing the importance of communicating with both clinicians and patients after they've been in the ICU. Um, so your article uh, with uh, Dr. Angus was recently published in JAMA, the January issue in 2018. I mean, it's an outstanding review of uh, recovering from sepsis. Um, I was wondering if you could share with us maybe uh, two or three studies uh, from your review um, that provide evidence uh, for the management of uh, post-hospital care care of sepsis uh, survivors. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, uh, glad you enjoyed the review. Um, yeah, I think that there's sort of several studies that I would highlight that have been really sort of important for improving our sort of understanding and also management of patients in the past five to ten years. So in terms of sort of understanding, you know, um, so the study by Jack Awashna and JAMA back in 2010 um, that looked at functional disability and cognitive impairment among people who had survived a sepsis hospitalization. Um, and the reason that study was really important um, is it was the first study to really show that this is an incredibly common thing that happens in a nationally representative sample of patients. And even in patients who aren't sort of the sickest of the sick, even in patients who never get treated in the ICU, about half of the patients in that study had you know, severe sepsis, had organ dysfunction, but were managed completely on the ward. Um, and so while there had been sort of earlier cohort studies that had you know, sort of concerning findings that, you know, people had severe problems after critical illness and after sepsis. This was the first study, I think, to show just the sort of magnitude of the problem and that, again, it's not just, you know, certain centers or it's not just the sickest of the sick patients or people who are on, you know, mechanical ventilation for a week, but that many patients, even sort of people with what we would say was sort of like more mild um, hospitalization for severe sepsis, frequently have new functional limitations. So average patient had one and a half new functional limitations and there was a tripling in the rate of moderate to severe cognitive dysfunction in patients in that study. So, so I think that one was hugely important in terms of sort of advancing our understanding of how common these sequelae are of sepsis. And then um, sort of other important studies um, sort of in this paper in, what is it now, table one, um, we sort of highlight several studies um, that uh, focus on um, medical problems in patients recently surviving sepsis. And so there are, um, you know, study by um, Sachin Yende showing that patients have increased risk for cardiovascular events following sepsis hospitalization. Um, there's an, another study um, 
uh, by Shen uh, et al. in Critical Care Medicine 2016, looking at increased risk in a population-based study in Taiwan, uh, increased risk of recurrent sepsis hospitalization compared to very carefully matched controls. Um, and then one of my prior studies that also looked at hospital readmission and found increased rates for uh, readmission for recurrent sepsis, acute kidney injury, and also aspiration pneumonia and pneumonitis. And so I think those these sort of matched cohort studies where we really try to compare patients with sepsis to patients who have uh, very similar patients who have survived, you know, similar hospitalizations, but for other diagnoses, sort of tries to isolate, well, what are the sort of like particular issues that patients have after a sepsis hospitalization? And so, again, we come back to, you know, recurrent infection being probably the biggest biggest issue after sepsis, um, also cardiovascular events, acute kidney injury, and aspiration being sort of four things that are increasing, you know, particularly common in patients following sepsis compared to hospitalizations for other causes. Um, so, so I think those sort of collection of studies are also very important to advancing our understanding of what are the medical conditions that people are at risk for following sepsis. And then the third study, I would say, um, that is very, very important in sort of understanding um, the management of people post-sepsis is the SMOOTH study, which was published in JAMA in 2016. This is the only uh, randomized controlled trial that has been done specifically trying to improve rehabilitation of patients surviving a sepsis hospitalization. And so uh, the particular intervention was um, a... Um, sort of like enhancement of primary care-based management. So um, they did education to patients uh, as well as to the primary care physicians who uh, were, uh, manage these patients in the outpatient setting. Um, they also provided extra support to primary care physicians by allowing, uh, giving them sort of access, direct access to an uh, intensivist consultant to answer any questions, you know, do you think this could be related to the sepsis hospitalization or, you know, what do you suggest for this particular symptom? Um, and then they also had... Um, um, sort of case management. So they had uh, sort of outpatient and ICU trained nurses who were following, checking in with the patient, trying to elicit symptoms before they came more severe so that they could sort of preemptively manage any kind of sequelae of sepsis. And, you know, <clears throat> this was a very well done study. Again, it was really the first RCT to focus specifically on this patient population and specifically on this, you know, issue of rehabilitating patients after a sepsis hospitalization. Um, it was a negative trial. Um, you know, the primary outcome was mental health-related quality of life, and that was not different between the, you know, control arm, who just got usual primary care, versus this sort of enhanced primary care group. Um, and so, you know, so again, like overall, this was a negative study. Um, but I do think that they, they looked at sort of a whole variety of secondary outcomes. So there's like about 30 different secondary outcomes that were measured at six months and then again at 12 months. Um, and there were several of them that showed, you know, a suggestion of benefit in the treatment arm. And, you know, again, like given how many secondary outcomes there were, I mean, I, we, this basically has to be considered as hypothesis generating, but it, it didn't appear to just be sort of like a random, you know, collection of secondary outcomes that happened to be positive just because so many things were measured. Rather, all of these secondary outcomes clustered around sort of functional um, capacity. So these were sort of ability to complete um, activities and independent activities of daily living that were really improved in this intervention group. So I think, you know, does suggest that there are things that we can do to try to help, you know, improve recovery after sepsis. Um, and, and it was also an interesting study because, you know, there's been a lot of attention to post-ICU clinics, um, which I think are, you know, 
you know, are, you know, have potential to help a lot of people. Um, but the, one of the limitations of them is it's just sort of like yet another doctor added to a patient's um, um, sort of regimen or sort of healthcare. And, and and for many patients, you know, they don't want sort of yet another doctor or yet yet another clinic to go to. They'd rather just really go back to the primary care doctor that knows them. So I thought this was a, a cool study because um, it sort of just took a different approach to 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 managing patients um, post sepsis compared to you know prior studies that have looked at um, the impact of post ICU clinics. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, right, so those are sort of like the, the, the big studies, I would say. Um, uh, and I'll also say I think that, you know, there's sort of a lot more learning that we have to do. The fact that we've only had, you know, one study, you know, specifically focused on this patient population, um, given how large this patient population is and how common morbidity is after sepsis hospitalization, you know, it's like the number one driver of hospital readmission. I think that, you know, more studies are warranted. And I think that, you know, this sort of, these positive secondary outcomes in the SMOOTH study suggest that probably we could sort of iterate and refine and, you know, perhaps do better the next time. Yeah, I mean, that was a really great uh, informative overview. In your review article, you identified uh, several important unanswered questions that researchers should focus on in the next five to ten years. Um, could you maybe share those with us? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think I'm trying to think, right. So, Let's see, I'm just looking here at the unanswered question. So we said, you know, is sepsis different from any other hospitalization, you know? And I think that um, uh, that's sort of an important question is sort of what's the sort of right way to sort of lump or split our patients? You know, there have been a lot of studies that have looked at just post-ICU in general, and I think that there are certain things like, you know, weakness that are sort of common across people who are hospitalized for critical illness. But then there seem to be other things that are very particular to people, you know, following a sepsis hospitalization, for example this issue of recurrent infection. So the sort of relative immune suppression uh, or a relative immune impairment that happens to sort of many patients after sepsis hospitalization seems to be something that's particular to sepsis. And so I think we sort of need better clarity on sort of like what are the things that just happen broadly after hospitalization? What are the things that are sort of more unique to being more critically ill or in an ICU? You know, what are the things that are, you know, specific to having uh, sepsis, to having infection with associated organ dysfunction? And so I think just sort of better clarity on that is helpful because then as we sort of think about, you know, doing interventional studies, we make sure that we're uh, testing them in the right patient population so that we sort of, you know, are, are more likely to sort of, you know, find studies that work and then also be able to inform our care of patients in the real world. Um, another thing we asked about is, you know, which aspects of illness and treatment contribute to which post-sepsis sequelae. So, you know, one of the issues about critical care is it's pretty messy, right? I mean, so when you're studying patients with sepsis, you know, you're studying people who have a whole variety of different infections, a whole variety of different associated organ dysfunctions, and who receive a whole ton of different treatments in the ICU, such as mechanical ventilation, you know, even neuromuscular blockade at times, you know, who are also exposed to sedation, you know, who have delirium, and sort of, I was like, what are the most important important drivers, right? You know, um, you know, is it the underlying illness that causes this particular sequelae? Is it the treatment with neuromuscular blockade? Is it the, you know, treatment with a sedative? Is it the, you know, three days of delirium that this patient has? And, and it becomes very sort of challenging to isolate those things, um, 
uh, when there's so many different exposures going on. Um, and so I think that that is sort of one of the challenging things to disentangle in terms of, you know, where should we really be focusing our energy on in terms of which exposures are sort of most important to limit during the hospitalization. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that, you know, delirium is associated with longer-term outcomes. You know, probably it's both just like a marker of people who are likely to have bad outcomes, but also potentially a mediator. So, you know, the days of delirium that people have, if we can reduce that, you know, can we improve longer-term outcomes? So, so, so that I think is one of the sort of ongoing challenges in this environment. Um, Great. Right. I mean, uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, discuss this important topic and stressing the importance of sepsis uh, recovery in our patients. Um, I'll definitely recommend our audience to get a copy of Dr. Prescott's article from JAMA, uh, the 2018 January issue. It's uh, it's fantastic. Um, Hallie, before we finish up, I just wanted to ask you. Um, if you could maybe share with uh, our fellows, the junior faculty, um, two polls that you'd wish to impart to them, either related to critical care or to sepsis recovery in general. Sure, yeah. Well, I guess uh, uh, the two pearls I sort of thought of were um, things really related to, I guess, career development for, you know, faculty, uh, for fellows and junior faculty. And so uh, the first thing I'll say, this was sort of advice that was given to me when I was, I think, a med one or a med two, when I, you know, hadn't even decided yet that I was going into internal medicine, you know, let alone pulmonary critical care. But um, one of the sort of lectures that was given to me in, in med school, the the attending said, you know, do what you love, success will follow. Um, basically saying, don't worry about, you know, like how much money will the specialty make or what are the hours. Just sort of figure out what it is that makes you happy. And if you do that and focus your energy there, like you will be good at it. And I would say that the corollary that I've also experienced is, you know, don't do something just because it's, quote, easy. You know, there have been times that people have sort of approached me, oh, you know, I'm sort of interested in this question. You know, we could sort of look at this in a, you know, a paper. And I say, oh, great, you know, this will be easy, right? Like, I'm mildly interested in this question, but I don't think it will be that hard, so we'll do it. And then my experience is that nothing really uh, is ever as easy as you think. And so um, it can be a drag when sort of two years later you're working on revise and resubmits, and it's just not a paper that you're super passionate about. So I really try to think about not how hard will this be, but how interested am I in this question? Is this sort of research question worth my sort of time and effort? Um, again, focusing really on is this a really important clinical question that needs to be to be asked and needs to be answered and trying not to focus on how hard is it going to be to answer that question. My second pearl is, um, you know, this is really focused on sort of fellows and sort of earlier folks, is to to really try to get involved in, in ATS. I remember my first time going to ATS conference, I was a resident, and it was totally overwhelming, right? I mean, I get to this conference, I know about three people, um, and there's, you know, 16,000 people, and I was just thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, like, this is crazy, and where do I even start? And, you know, the, the sort of giant book with all the different sessions going on, I just sort of felt very overwhelmed. And I would say that each year I just, you know, try to get involved in any way that I can. So, for example, I've, you know, participated in the assembly mentorship programs every year, initially as a mentee and now as a mentor. Um, I also, you know, really recommend the apprenticeship programs that put junior people into program and planning committees um, with a sort of a mentor to help them sort of understand about those committees. Um, you know, another sort of opportunity is just emailing program um, committee chairs and co-chairs to say, hey, you know, I'd be interested in, you know, sort of like co-facilitating a thematic poster session or a poster discussion session, sort of all those different things, you know. I would say that the more you get involved in ATS, 
ETS, sort of the more friends you have at ETS, to the point that then you come back and, you know, you just basically spend all your time sort of catching up with, you know, people around the country that you've, you know, met over sort of, you know, the past um, many ATS conferences. And so I would say that the more I get involved in ATS, the more rewarding I have found it um, for me. And sort of having professional connections around the country has just been, you know, incredibly, you know, beneficial to me. So, so that would be my sort of other pearl of wisdom to uh, junior folks in ATS. That's a great recommendation, and thanks for sharing with us. Uh, thank you very much, Hallie. Great. Thank you so much for uh, having me do this podcast. This has been a pleasure. A big thank you to Dr. Hallie Prescott, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.